Alright, ladies and gentlemen, you are back at You Say You Want a Revolutionary. And last pod we looked at Yuval Noah Harari, a modern author that talks a lot about uh, human cooperation, how that's allowed us to succeed as a species. Today we're going to look at a similar kind of argument, but about how cooperation, not competition, are the means by which to move people forward. Oddly enough for some, the strongest argument for cooperation is going to come from a devoted anarchist. A guy that I think should be much more well-known, but unfortunately really isn't in the Western world. His name is Peter Kropotkin. Or, uh, more specifically, Peter Alexavich Kropotkin. He's born in Moscow in uh, 1842. And he is he's actually of a fairly wealthy family. He comes from noble lines. And he is so high class that he was born actually a prince. So you'd have to call him Prince Peter. Uh, his family owns at the time close to uh, 1,200 serfs, and they had these giant tracts of land in Russia that they owned. He had a brother, an older brother named Nikolai, who he didn't spend too much time with. Nikolai went into military service and moved away to go and fight in the Crimean War. He had another brother named Alexander, who was born in 1841. Peter and Alexander spent a great deal of their early lives kind of together, and they were pretty close. Peter went off to study at the Cour de Page in St. Petersburg. It's like this kind of elitist school for the children of noble families. His family's a little odd because even though they had a fair amount of wealth and they were, you know, of the noble class in Russia, they were kind of fallen from grace a little bit. They used to be the ruling family in Russia until the Romanovs kind of pushed them out. But this was kind of dad's hope. He was going to send his kids off to this fancy school and uh, all of the best of the best went there. And Kropakin went there as well. He kind of detailed the beatings and the hazings that went on there. They were pretty common. His dad was very happy about the fact that he was there. Maybe his family is going to be able to return to its former glory. And Peter, generally speaking, thought that this school sucked. Right? The teachers didn't seem to know very much. The education seemed to be pretty much just an education in how awesome you are uh, and not much else. Four years later, though, he graduated top of the class and he became like a personal assistant to the czar. In 1862, he leaves completely for a commission in the military serving in eastern Siberia. Now, as a prince, he's expected to be an officer in the army and go and, you know, rule these men and order people around and do military stuff, but fighting is not his thing. He is, he's a science nerd, right? He likes geology, he likes zoology, much more than ordering around soldiers. And as one of the top graduates, he gets the pick of his assignments, and his choice was for the people at the time, completely kind of mind-blowing. It's like, why would you choose to go off to Siberia where there's nothing happening? But he did some uh, geographical work on mountains, uh, for which he won a couple of awards and was offered a pretty great post pa back in Moscow. But when he was away, he started reading all kinds of other stuff. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, he started reading about Mikhail Bakunin, uh, and he developed an interest in anarchism. In 1872, he joined a group that's spreading revolutionary propaganda around Moscow at the time, in St. Petersburg, too. It's called the Tchaikovsky Circle, or the Circle of Tchaikovsky, a group kind of committed to giving out this propaganda stuff. And he's doing this, like, hiding in plain sight. He's like superhero man. He is a respectable aristocrat military guy by day, subversive anarchist, disseminating propaganda in the evening hours. But... It works for a little while. In 1874, it all comes crashing down pretty much, and he's arrested by the cops for his political work. 
He knew what he was doing was dangerous. His brother had actually gone to jail a couple years before this for reading Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, it's it's not a bad book, but, I mean, it's hard to see how it's, like, jail-worthy. But anyways, his brother was sent to jail for this until the teacher eventually came forward and said, my bad, I'm the one who gave him this book, and the brother was let out of jail. But when the cops came and they searched through uh, Peter's house, they found all kinds of political books. They found his propaganda, they found his diary, they read his diary, those jerks. And Kropotkin found himself uh, on trial for his beliefs, and they called a number of witnesses and bribed a couple more, and he gets sent to jail. But, get this, this Santa Claus-looking guy with his little glasses escapes from Russian prison and flees to Switzerland which is pretty badass. In 1867, his brother is arrested and charged with political untrustworthiness. That's a charge. He's exiled to Siberia, and that's where he's going to live for the next 10 years of his life. Many people think that he was just arrested because of the fact that Peter had escaped. Being the sciencey type that he is, he continues to really be interested in all kinds of science stuff, especially the works of Charles Darwin. He has a profound respect for Charles Darwin and his writings, and he called it, quote, perhaps the most brilliant scientific generalization of the century. Kropotkin totally accepted the idea that there is a struggle for existence and that this plays an important role in the evolution of the species. He totally rejected the idea, however, that this is an individual struggle that one of our greatest strengths throughout our development as a species has been our cooperation, not our competing with one another. In 1883, he's arrested again. He spends three more years in jail for his political views. He was in France then. He gets released and he moves to England, where he's becoming famous now. He's writing all kinds of scientific journals. He's writing opinion pieces. And when he goes to England, he becomes good friends with George Bernard Shaw. He begins an anarchist journal called Freedom, uh, like a newspaper, right? And he is pretty in demand as a writer. He, at the time, is one of the most well-known anarchists at the time, like Emma Goldman and uh, a few others, but he is really sought after. He continues to uh, develop his ideas about evolution, and he's totally enamored with the idea. In 1888, however, Thomas Huxley writes The Struggle for Existence. Thomas Huxley is the guy who writes the quote, survival of the fittest. That doesn't appear anywhere in Darwin's writings. And Kropotkin saw this work as completely wrong-headed. He did not see human competition as the driving force of change, but rather like ants and bees and wolves and elephants and other social creatures, he felt that it's actually cooperation that is the driving force behind change. In the, in the family, the tribe, the village, cooperation is what leads us to survive and thrive. In 1890, his brother dies by suicide. He had been in Siberia for like 10 years. He had spent almost all of the family fortune. He sent his wife and his kids back to Moscow uh, before he died. They had actually traveled out to Siberia with him. And he had like 300 rubles left of his family's vast fortune. It must have been uh, extremely hard on Peter and, of course, Alexander's family that this was Alexander's eventual outcome. In 1892, Kropotkin published a book called Conquest of Bread. It's generally agreed that it's the clear statement of his anarchist sort of ideas. It's kind of like uh, the Communist Manifesto. It's not written in kind of highfalutin, ivory tower sort of academia language. It's written for everyday people to read. The, the main gist of the book is that the wage system that we currently have is kind of a joke. right? It, it assumes that it can measure the value of every individual's work. 
And we have to abolish that in favor of a system that, that provides equal rewards for everybody. He's arguing that a system of anarchist communism by which you know private property and inequality would be gotten rid of and it would be replaced by the free distribution of goods and services. It is virtually impossible, he argues, to assess what somebody's labor is actually worth. A doctor might go to school for years and years and years and everyone agrees that their work is really important. They can help pe keep people alive. But is it more important than the garbage collector that's been working six days a week collecting trash ever since they were 18 or 20? Yes, one does cure your sickness, but the other one prevents sickness through the sanitary disposal, disposal of trash. One went to school for years and years, but the other worked the entire time the other one was at school. And the average doctor, at least in Canada here, makes over five times what a garbage collector would make. Do they work five times as hard? And this is in Canada with a socialized system of medicine. A construction worker may uh, have to be forced into retirement at the age of 45 or 50 with a broken body from years of hard labor. And the architect sitting in an office is going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars more in income while sitting comfortably at a drafting table. Who's worked harder? Who is worth more? Right? Hasn't every generation contributed to our society's current success or lack thereof? How do we reward success in a competition that wasn't fair from the start? The easiest and most common example, of course, is going to be somebody who does something that makes them famous, a professional athlete or a professional musician. Most people are going to say, okay, there's no way this guy who's riding the pine for you know the Maple Leafs is worthy of the money that he's making. There's no way that someone is going to say, becomes famous for saying something like, cash me outside, deserves the millions of dollars that they're going to receive. Kropotkin is saying that it's an impossible judgment, so we have to not do it. Not that one group is worth any more than the other, or one group is worth any less. He's not devaluing a doctor. He's just saying we're all worth an equal amount of stuff from our society if we're contributing towards that society. It's, it's become a common argument that the wage system is best because it forces people to work when they would otherwise be lazy. You've heard that argument before. Human beings are naturally lazy. Kropotkin argues that this is the same argument made by slave owners in the United States, that slaves need slavery because their natural state is just to be so lazy. And it wasn't true then, and it isn't true now. Slave owners are the ones that were said to be practical. They thought they were being practical, and they said, sure, we need to get rid of slavery, okay. But if we just get rid of it, no one will ever work. So why don't we agree to this? We will decrease the violence. We'll use a thinner whip over time, maybe just a half-inch thick whip, and then a quarter-inch thick But we're going to need the whip because human nature is so lazy. This is kind of a similar argument, Koprokin says, to what capitalism is doing now. Practical people will tell you that you can't have any sort of different system because no one will do any work at all. We'll just sit around and do nothing all day, I guess, because they'll say it is, quote, human nature. We are too bad, as it were, for something like socialism or anarchism or communism to ever work. Kropotkin was amazed, actually, that anybody believed this argument because he didn't think they thought it through for even a second. It seems like one of the best arguments against capitalism, not for it. If people are naturally lazy, let's presume that that's true. If people are naturally lazy and naturally immoral, why create a system that allows one group to dominate the other and that makes it a value to do that? If people are naturally inclined to work as little as possible, which, I mean, there really isn't much evidence of, but if they were, wouldn't a system like capitalism just allow one group to force the other to do more work while they sit back and do less and take the profits? Of course it would. If we're so inherently lazy and bad, 
why are the wealthy, quote, job makers, in modern terms, not also subject to the same thing? Why aren't they lazy and bad too? They shouldn't get a pass on this. It reminds me of that quote. Um, I don't even remember where I saw it, but it was a meme. Maybe it was a definition. I don't know. Um, it was like, capitalism is the brilliant idea that the worst people with the worst motives will somehow accomplish what is best for us all. Kropotkin goes on to argue that we're conditioned to believe that we're naturally lazy because of our current system. In our system, we work for money, not to fulfill a role in a community, not to better ourselves, not to better the lives of other people, but for money. And if there isn't more money to be had, then we don't do any more work than we have to. Then we turn around and call people lazy for not working over and above what they have to do, for not supplying labor without extra wages. Working people are just valuing what society has taught them to value, money. If you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to work. That's what our society tells us. If you're going to pay the lowest amount allowed by law, why would you not expect people to work the lowest amount to still get paid? It kind of reminds me how some people talk about teenagers and students nowadays, that people will complain that students never do anything above and beyond. And I know you give an assignment out, some students are immediately going to ask, is this for marks? And if the teacher says no, I mean, you can watch them not do a very good job at it. And then some teachers will complain about their work ethic and say, you know, they're just lazy and they don't want to do anything. My take has always been a little different, that these students are not the disease, they're the symptom. We've taught them for years that they have to get good marks to get into a good program, to get into a good college or university, so then they can get a good job, and then they can get paid, and then they can have a good life. Whew. We can't be surprised when they don't want to do work that is not for marks. Every report card that they have ever received had a single mark on it and a few comments that summarizes their entire effort. If there isn't a mark for tried really hard or did their best that day, uh, you know, it isn't something that we have taught them to value. We teach them to value the number. They aren't lazy or stupid, they're just following our lead. The examples they see reflect uh, what they see in the outside world. Do we reward people for doing good work in the community, for taking a job that benefits society? Sometimes the answer is yes, but much more frequently you're going to make more money if you're doing something that is actually screwing something or somebody over. Does an investor care about the pollution from a copper mine when they're investing thousands of dollars into it? Does a, does a bank care about the ethical practices of a company before giving them a loan? Does a store owner selling liquor care that their customers may or may not be alcoholics? No, of course not. They value the bottom line. They value the numbers. That's what we've created. So we can't be pissed when students do the same thing. We can't turn around and say, well, you're never going to make it into Yale or Harvard or MIT with this poor work ethic and 90% average, this 4.0 GPA. It's, they're going to want to know you're a better person. No, they're not. And we did this to them. They didn't do it to themselves. And Kropotkin is saying it doesn't have to be this way. These are the choices we have made through beliefs that we have not examined nearly enough. We're told that socialism doesn't work or anarchism doesn't work because there isn't a reward for effort. Without capitalism, people would be lazy and work a bare minimum, so they need to have the threat of poverty or the threat of firing to keep them working. Why do we even still believe that hard work is genuinely rewarded in this society when oftentimes we know that that's not the case? Kropotkin certainly knew that. In the bread book, he explains that people will make 20 or 30 loaves of bread a day and be rewarded with enough money to buy a loaf, while the owner sells the rest and makes the most money. But without this system of reward, people wouldn't work at all? 
Okay, so a minimum wage job that takes most of the fruits of your labor for someone else's profit is supposed to be encouraging, while a socialist job in which everyone shares in everything they produce is supposed to be discouraging? Does that even make any sense? Throughout human history, people work their hardest when it benefits everyone, themselves included. Truth is, Kropotkin believed that we aren't lazy, that we aren't stupid, and we aren't selfish, but we currently live in a system that encourages all three of those traits. People aren't lazy. We volunteer, we coach, we work at churches, we are little league managers, right? We help old ladies across the street. We learn new skills when we don't have to. Uh, we read new books just for enjoyment. But we do those things because we see a direct reward to ourselves, we enjoy it, or to our community. It benefits someone. We don't work harder at our jobs because no matter what, the extra profit isn't going to go to you or your community, and we know it. Like, we are, we are built for activity. Our brains want stimulation. Our hands want to do work. But we don't want to do it so someone else can increase their bank account at our expense. People want to do work that's engaging. They want to do work that they find meaningful, that they find fulfilling. And that's not going to happen flipping burgers. Especially when the possibility of a raise or a reward comes once a year in 10 cent increments. That is not encouraging. Kropotkin went on to attack all kinds of schools. He did not have nice things to say. Uh, he described the education system as a university of laziness. He argued that it was superficiality. It is parrot-like repetition, slavishness, and inertia of mind. That's what he thought came from the education system. Quote, we do not teach our children to learn. And it's interesting because how many people out there listening to this right now have learned all kinds of material for an exam only to forget it as soon as the exam is over? How many hours have people spent memorizing facts and figures just to regurgitate them onto a test? Kropotkin is one of the first to argue in his time that an outdoor education, learning by doing and observing firsthand, is the best way to learn. Quote, we are so perverted by an education which from infancy seeks to kill in us the spirit of revolt and to develop that of submission to authority. If this state of things continues, we shall lose all initiative, all habit of thinking for ourselves. Our society seems no longer able to understand that it is possible to exist otherwise than under the reign of law, elaborated by a government and administrated by a handful of rulers. The education we all receive from the state, at school, and after has so warped our minds that the very notion of freedom ends up by being lost and disguised in servitude. Ooh, ouch, that's heavy. But along with that, Kropotkin also rejects the idea of some sort of secret, like, vanguard of the proletariat. He insists that social emancipation has to be attained by libertarian, not dictatorial means. For him, the, the, the means and the ends cannot be separate. If you want a society that advances peace and equality and benefit to everybody, you can't do that as some sort of communist dictator. It can't be forced by a small revolutionary group. That's going to doom it right from the start. In 1897, he came to Toronto. He was invited to speak at the U of T, uh, University of Toronto, sorry. And he uh, was pretty impressed by Canada. He looked at the agricultural kind of abundance throughout, and he thought it was a pretty wonderful place. He crosses the border, travels to the United States, meets a number of different professors, a number of social democrats. Uh, the New York Herald reports on him, and they say, quote, Prince Kropotkin is anything but the typical anarchist. In appearance, he's patriarchal. 
and while his dress is careless, it is the carelessness of a man who is engrossed in science, rather than that of the man who is in revolt against the usages of society. His manners are those of the polished gentleman, and he has none of the bitterness and dogmatism of the anarchist whom we are accustomed to see here. The U.S. loved him, right? In New York, people came to see him by the hundreds. They came away thinking that he is completely sincere, completely genuine, and totally compassionate. One remark that he uh, reminded him of an old preacher, kind, kind of kind-hearted older man who is compassionate and holds the audience's tension, attention through his uh, passion and his genuine nature. He stayed with anybody that would put him up. And everyone remarked about how uh, wonderful a guest he was. He's refined and intelligent. He's really interested in their lives. He was being genuine the entire time. He was very lovable. Right? He would greet everyone with a huge welcome, kisses on both cheeks, regardless of what their position was in life. The uh, wealthy tycoon and the poorest street vendor received the same introduction from Kropotkin. He eventually returned to England uh, after the woman he was staying with was attacked in Chicago where Kropotkin was staying. He moved back to London because he was worried about the difficulties he was causing to people back in Chicago. For the next few years, he focused on his writing more than anything else, wrote a few books, including his famous work called Mutual Aid, as well as his autobiography and, and uh, a number of other works. By his old age, he's considered a well-known political figure. Emma Goldman referred to him frequently as the godfather of anarchism. He moves back to Russia after the overthrow of the government in 1917, uh, the communist takeover, but when the Bolsheviks ascended to power, he's reported to have said, quote, well, this buries the revolution, end quote. Lenin, who felt that anarchists could not really be worked with, invited Kropotkin to the Kremlin to express his admiration, but after a few months, Kropotkin sent a letter to Lenin and said, yeah, this is not going to work. Uh, I'm not working with you people. Russia is a Soviet republic only in name, and that you're running it through party committees and not really the people. Kropotkin died of pneumonia in uh, 1921, and he is buried in Novodevsky Cemetery in Moscow. So why do I think Kropotkin is so important? Well, we are fully social human beings, and we are only working to our fullest potential when we are working together in goals that are mutually beneficial to everyone. Any form of authoritarianism is morally corrupt to Kropotkin whether it's Soviet state socialism, communism, fascist dictatorship, class rule, whatever. He doesn't care. If it's forced from above, it is morally corrupt. Cooperation is essential. Quote, Individualism, narrowly egotistical, is incapable of inspiring anybody. There is nothing great or gripping in it. Individuality can attain its supreme development only in the highest common social effort. He didn't like authoritarian communism. He didn't like Marx. Remember, they, these guys are contemporaries. He saw Marx as a hypocrite, uh, which wasn't something that he could tolerate. This guy has integrity coming out of his ears, right? His book, one of his books, was called The Great French Revolution. The Russian government approached him and said they wanted to use this book in their schools. They were going to purchase thousands and thousands of copies. He would have been very wealthy again. He refused. He said, no, I'm not going to do it because it's coming from you, your government, and I don't agree with you. And I think your school system sucks. Bye. He refused loans and gifts from people that he didn't agree with. Whenever there was a string attached to anything, he refused, even when he is living in poverty. I could not find one description that said negative things about this person. Oscar Wilde called him one of the two truly happy people that he ever met in his life. 
Now, unfortunately, much of his work and his ideology have been overshadowed by the events of World War I, the Russian Revolution, the creation of the USSR, the works of Karl Marx. His name outside of philosophy or history or political science students is pretty well unknown, which is really unfortunate, because what Kropotkin is arguing for is not a violent revolution that's going to kill people and destroy things, or it's not an authoritarian force of communism from the barrel of a gun, right? Another reason he's less well-known than Marx is because it's a little more pragmatic. Marx offers a step-by-step guide that anarchism as an ideology just can't do. Kropotkin would say that the best any one person could do is work in mutually beneficial endeavors whenever possible. Find a community of like-minded people and just do it. Make work all voluntary, work whenever you want to, but never because you have to, and always, always be true to yourself. Anarchism is not a wild idea of smashing things and starting fires. Actually, it's like the most natural and the most frequent principle of organization that we've ever had as a species. It's cooperation for the betterment of everybody. It's commonly said that anarchism is a beautiful dream. It's impossible. Maybe at some point in time in the future when we all become more civilized. But that view misses the point. The point is that anarchism is always there as an idea. Look at the thousands of examples that you see all the time when people help each other. Look at when there's an extreme example, a flood hits, an ice storm, people come together immediately and they start working together for the common good. And usually before uh, a society can even mobilize, by a society I mean the police, the firefighters, the, the ambulance drivers, the first responders are oftentimes regular people that are there and immediately start working towards the common good. If Uh, The means create the ends. No really free society is possible without the constant building up of these free relationships. It's interesting that right now, the movements that thrive, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's uh, I Don't Know More, all these, the, the older Occupy movements, all of these that are successful are the ones that are built on anarchist principles of individual autonomous groupings, a bottom up, a bottom up organization. And that this very principle is so scorned and ridiculed in everyday society is the one that seems to work best when we talk about education or charities or NGOs or trade unions. Locations all around the world, social advances are happening most often when people are working together. These are goals that are going to affect us all in a positive way, and they don't require a huge hierarchy. Kropotkin seemed to be saying this, and maybe that's why his ideas were so threatening, not because he's talking about violently overthrowing a government. He's not but because he knew a fundamental truth, that most people are genuinely good and cooperative, that it's only our political and economic system that turns us against each other, and that eventually we will realize that if or when we work together, we don't need governments at all. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening.